Hello and welcome to Inside B2B, brought to you by Marketing Week in partnership with Omo Bono. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week and Festival of Marketing, and I am your host. Our subject today is customer experience. It's not an exclusive concern of B2B brands by any means. It's a topic that dominates many thoughts and conversations in B2B marketing. What does CX mean in B2B? What does good look like? And how can that be achieved? Just some of the things we will discuss, debate, and dissect today. I'm not alone in doing all of those things. I have three huge authorities with me to dig into the topic today. First up, I have Roy van Grinsven, Corporate Digital Officer at Mitsubishi Chemical Advanced Materials, and somebody with exec level experience of delivering customer transformation initiatives at several big companies. Also, Antonia Kasparek, Head of Digital Marketing at Aviva, where she leads CX efforts. And Chris Barnes, Head of Experience at Omobono, and therefore tasked with working out CX strategies for a number of different clients. Roy, Antonia, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, let me start with you, Roy. Let's start with a basic question. CX gets discussed, as I alluded to in my introduction, a lot in terms of B2C marketing, but in B2B, perhaps historically less so. I mean, what would you say at CX means in a B2B context? Well, I think um, we see also a bit of evolution happening now in, um, in B2B in terms of uh, CX, where initially the initial conversations in, I think in several companies, but at least the companies that I've seen, CX focuses at how the experience is with existing customers. So the moment that there is an engagement, how does our website look like? What is our customer service and etc. And I see quite big of an evolution there in, in CX thinking that also B2B companies now start thinking about the full customer experience journey, even let's say from a, from a customer perspective. So starting from what is the problem? What is the challenge you know, that, that the customer and the potential customer has throughout their entire decision journey, including, let's say, the moments that they're in touch with your company, but primarily moving also to trying to understand that customer when they're not yet or actually not in touch with your company. So better understanding of what is that customer actually doing? Where is it gathering its information? How is a decision kind of being built up and then understand the position that you have as a company kind of to influence in that full decision journey. So I think it's it's an evolution that is happening. Just picking up on that word evolution, what were the triggers, would you say, that perhaps led to B2B, uh, B2B brands thinking more what led to that evolution? Was, was there a moment in time or a realization that change was necessary? I think it's a combination of multiple factors, but I think that it, it's certainly several aha moments or awareness moments where whether it comes from competitors, other industries, or from B2C. Let's say people in B2B get more exposed to the fact that it is crucial to understand the full journey of a customer and not only the journey of when being in touch, let's say, with that customer. So I think it's almost a bit like seeing the things that we've never been aware of, eh? that, there is, that there is influence you need to have outside of your current engagement. So. 
I think it's a multitude of factors, but typically moments where, you know, people in B2B companies get exposed to, ah, this is what it looks like kind of in other industry and in, in, uh, in other companies. And I suppose the benefits, advantages and commercial outcomes are, are also being realized as well. And, uh, and, um, and, and more obvious and more evident in B2B brands. Yeah, I think the um, uh, uh, obviously kind of a, a decision-making process in different B2B journeys and, and, and models works differently than purely in a B2C uh, environment. And therefore also the effect of influencing kind of that decision journey is, um, is very different. I think it is what I see a lot is that kind of people also see this as an, a very much an untapped potential. You know, that, okay, there is, a, there is a whole wealth of potential customers out there that we actually were not even aware existed or were not even aware we can tap into. And that's, of course, where there is massive potential, I think, in, uh, in terms of B2B. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, we'll go on to discuss a little bit later about how perhaps to realize that potential. You touched upon a few things there that we'll dig into a little bit later around customer journeys, but uh, thanks for that. Antonio, if I could bring you in, you've worked for a, a number of different organizations that might be identified as hybrid B2C and B2B. I mentioned at the beginning uh, in my introduction that B2C have been obsessed. Uh, I mean, I talk to a lot of people and customer experience tends to be one of the first things that they say they are challenged with. Is it as important as, as it is in B2C? What are the differences, do you think? I think absolutely it is. Uh, to tag on to Roy's comment, it's an evolution and expectations have been growing over time. The more that we blend our consumer lives and our professional lives, the more we expect similar levels of experience. We expect companies to know who we are. We expect them to give us delightful experiences. And as businesses, we, we have to invest in that customer experience to meet that new norm. It's, uh, it's absolutely going to continue evolving. I think over the last two years of being locked down, working at home and shopping at home, the experiences are, are overlapping tremendously and we just have to elevate our game as B2B uh, customer experience professionals. What are the nuances though, sticking with you, Antonia, uh, between B2B and B2C? I mean, there's a lot of distinction. I mean, broadly, I think at a strategic level, B2B is pretty much the same as B2C. I'm more than happy for you to disagree with me, but when it comes to tactics and execution, there are some differences. Obviously, the relationship that people have uh, in B2B with their sales force, for example. Obviously, you've got factors like account-based marketing. Does any of that make the delivery of customer experience different in B2B, would you say? I think one of the things you, that's different, absolutely, is the you're, you're not just selling or supporting a single person. It's a team. It's usually a buying group. The person that buys might not actually be the end user. The end user is probably not the person paying the bills. The support and the training has to be spread out across different users. So it's, it's a much more comprehensive ecosystem of the customer. So it, it isn't a single point person typically, at least not in, in my experience. Thank you for that. Chris, if I could bring you into the conversation, you can either reflect on anything that Antonia and Roy have already picked up on. But what I'm interested in hearing from you is how to actually do it. We've heard about the evolution. We've heard about the importance and we've heard about some of the distinctions 
between B2B and B2C. But for everybody that's listening, you're tasked, obviously, with helping people realise the potential and um, and to introduce and embed uh, customer experience strategies. And obviously, there's lots of different things that need to be in place to be able to do that. If you were advising, what are the key tenants from a culture, structure point of view that uh, people need to be aware of? So having the organisation aligned is key to any successful kind of CX initiative. Like the amount of initiatives I've seen fail because it was only the job of one department or there was no clear measurement goals or even a mismatch of priorities between different parts of organisations. Even simple things like having financial incentives that create behaviour at odds with the broader CX goal. They're all kind of contradicting each other and don't set you up for success. I think the other element is is almost not to try and do everything at once. So there needs to be uh, an attitude of always on content improvements with initiatives that can be implemented immediately alongside kind of larger transformational projects. I think some of the most successful CX initiatives have been the ones that start small in one area and then constantly iterate. And I suppose the last point may sound obvious, but it's not really customer experience unless you're involving customers in defining that experience and the ability to involve those customers in the feedback process and being prepared to talk to them is right up there. I think the number of businesses I've spoke to that are afraid of disturbing their customers because they might be too busy or they're already running a campaign with them and they don't want them to feel overwhelmed. But if they don't speak to them, it means you're kind of basing those projects on assumptions and hearsay and then you result is an expensive program of work that doesn't really address customer pain points, but really addresses internal workarounds for organizational inefficiencies that they're assuming their customers are experiencing. But there's a big mismatch there. Thank you for that. It's a really clear three-point plan for anybody looking to introduce better customer experience. Be aligned. Uh, Don't try and do everything at once. Make sure you actually involve the customer in developing services and outcomes that are for their benefit thank you chris can i bring you in on that uh, on some of those points roy i mean you've worked for some i think it's fair to say most people would say big companies sprawling companies multinational companies and you've been involved in transformation projects and rollout of cx at those companies i'm guessing the question of alignment and making sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of what good looks like has been a challenge. Can you perhaps speak to some of your experiences in this area, what some of the problems were and how you overcame them? Yeah, no, and maybe uh, I'm, I'm smiling because I think Chris's last point, I think for me is spot on, certainly in a lot of the bigger companies or more in B2B in general. I think the alignment topic is massively influenced by the lack of being able to reach out to actual customers and have that customer engagement and continue to have dialogues internally of what good looks like, how to improve, what a customer is expecting and etc. which is in many cases just an inside out assumption, which is not necessarily true or moreover in a lot of cases, certainly quite well off of what customers are actually expecting. So. I think a critical point there is to remove that threshold where there is a bit of fear, you know, where in, of course for the past 20, 30 years, there have been kingdoms, you know, there's, there's commercial teams that owned an engagement with a customer. 
they were kind of on top of that rock owning that engagement with the customer and no one else is going to talk to them and you know what the moment that someone else comes in and you're openly asking questions with that customer then you might get exposed because the customer might say other things than what you've been telling internally for the last 10 years so it's a massive change management aspect and removing that threshold of it is okay it is beneficial and it needs to be a starting point to talk to actual customers that are representative eh, of your experience so not the ones you know you're playing golf with every saturday but the critical ones as well because that's when you learn kind of where kind of the improvement needs to be i think overcoming that part also massively addresses the need for alignment of what goods look like you know what is that expectation and i think that's where Learning from B2C certainly is massive where the need to listen to customer feedback and whether it's through NPS surveys, whether it's in customer feedback sessions, whether it's in direct feedback, it doesn't matter. But that that need to really listen to your customer instead of an assumption internally from a few people of what actually that customer is expecting, I think that's key. So fully agree with, uh, with Chris. If nothing else, then that's massively the starting point to go with first. I think you've you've spoken several truths about several things that actually are failings in B2C as well. Firstly, that realisation that you are not your customer, you are not your target. So you would be doing them and your company a disservice unless you A, realise that and B, then sort to find out what they want, uh, what they need. And obviously to be able to do that, you need to ask them, but you also need to employ some pretty traditional customer insight and customer research. I mean, is that undervalued historically in B2B? Customer, well, not the insight, because that comes second, but the the research. I mean, could you be doing more of that? Antonio, people listening can't see, but you were, uh, you were nodding in agreement with Roy when he was making his point about realizing that you're not your customer, so you need to find out what, what makes them tick. Um, talk to me about what your experiences in this area and perhaps what you've done to try and remedy some of the historical failings. So I'm a, a massive proponent of customer research, user, user experience research, um, testing. If you've got alternative ideas of how to present something, testing things on your website, probably started because in my early career, I was an analyst within a market research department. So just lived it for a couple of years and absolutely believe that you need that voice of the customer to really guide you and drive you You have to be user obsessed to really be a user centric company. You can't just have it secondhand from your sales team, which is valuable, but it's not the only voice. So in the work that I do running our website, at least once a year, if not twice a year, I do standard UX research. It's relatively simplistic, but it is asking people to do things that are common and watching them do it. Just common tasks. You need to find a product. You need to find help on a bill. You need uh, to identify the right training for you. And watching how they do that experience and listening to them talk about it tells us so much. It really helps us identify what are the true pain points and then we fix them. And sometimes in the fix, we have a couple of different ways of doing it and we test. We test two approaches, two labels, two paths, and then the winner goes forward and we continually test. So I just really believe in that bringing the voice of the customer into the the process to get to better customer experience. 
talking to the customer and putting them at the center of what you do. It almost sounds straightforward, but clearly it's not the case for every brand everywhere. Chris, just a point, if I could, uh, from you on the need. It was you who brought it up in the first place, the need to understand customers. I mean, what techniques, tools, methods would you recommend people uh, use in order to find out more and put them at the centre of what you do? It doesn't need anything fancy or any specific tools, just a conversation to start off with. The first part is literally sitting down and, and having a conversation. There is obviously different ways within either qualitative or quantitative research where you can send out surveys or you can run analytics tools on your site to get more insight into what they're doing. So you can use hotspot analysis to figure out what they're looking at to use as a basis for what you want to talk to people about. You can use online survey tools that pop up at the right moment to try and capture feedback about specific elements in, in your service or about specific parts of your service. But all of that boils back down to you need to understand the why behind the what, which at some point boils back down to a conversation. I think it's, it's a mixture of those two. It's all sounding disarmingly straightforward, which is a good thing. Um, but uh, I, I, I do wonder whether or not people have historically overcomplicated, particularly in B2B, because the organisations can perhaps be a little bit more fragmented or hierarchical. Again, I'm making very sweeping generalizations, but it is considered or has been considered in some of the conversations I've had with B2B marketers, quite, you know, almost like a black box, like something that's really tough to crack. Um, There's a couple of things in there around, uh, I think Roy mentioned earlier, who owns the customer. So if it's typically an offline sales role that has customer relationship or customer reps, they feel like they own that customer relationship and trying to get their permission to speak to their customers often feels like a battle. They feel like you're intruding into their into their space. But also, I think in certain areas of B2B where there's specialists, where they might be, you know, if it's in the medical space, for instance, and you need to talk to one of only 20 people in the UK to try and get some insight, trying to find their time is often harder. So unlike in B2C where you're mass marketing to, to kind of generalists and you can just go out and recruit a panel, it sometimes takes, for some industries, not all, a little bit longer to find the right people to talk to and find the time, which again can be a balance or off-putting to some people, and which is why they skip it, but never go back to it and pull it back into the process. Thank you for that. On that question of ownership, if I could bring Antonio in first, we've heard about the the historic front end at the pointy end relationship that salespeople have with customers and the fact that they perhaps therefore own the CX, or at least they did at point of delivery. Who should own it? I mean, is it a simple case that one function, one set of individuals should, or should it be shared ownership? And how do you embed that shared ownership if that's what should be the case? I think, you know, in my experience, it's similar to what, what Chris referenced is that definitely the sales team or the account management team, depending on how you're structured, owns that primary relationship and it's harder to get access to customers. But I also think it's important to manage that access and it's important not to just handle them appropriately and pull them in effectively so you're not wasting their time with lots and lots of questions. But it also has to come with a, a moment of trust that what you're asking them about and they're giving you feedback on that you're actually going to use it. You're actually going to make things better or listen to the ideas that they have for innovation for you to build better things for them. 
we tend to have really strong partnerships with um, our biggest customers. And that's where a lot of ideas come from. And I would say those relationships, it's almost easier to have that voice of the customer coming in because of that partnership, because there's that expectation that, that they're going to help guide the solutions that we're building because they're going to be the big consumers of them. So it's a balance. It's a balance. Thank you. And thank you for articulating the need for balance. Uh, Chris, I'm going to come back to you because when you were presenting your three-step guide, you made some really salient points that I want to return to, one of which, I think the first of which, was alignment on KPIs. If I can just focus in on KPIs in particular or objectives, I mean, what should or how should, if I can put it that way, custom experience be measured? Um, How should uh, we determine success by what means I, I read a brief actually yesterday a lot of them have a phrase similar to this in which is you know our overall goal is to improve the user experience or to deliver a best-in-class CX and when you dig a little and ask them to explain what they mean behind that and not a lot of people can and not a lot of people can articulate what a best-in-class experience actually means and so it's just a meaningless phrase that doesn't really allow anyone to measure the success of So I like to kind of link the success of a CX program to the broader business goals. And I think without linking it to those business goals and talking again about organizational alignment, we don't have anything meaningful. So they have to be measured back and tied back to the priorities of the business and probably the the broader business plans that they have. And how are the initiatives that we're implementing from a CX perspective contributing to the wider business goals so that they're not looked at in isolation? You can look at the views of a website or look at how many kind of um, self-service requests you're having, but in isolation, do they tell you whether or not you're actually affecting the broader experience of customers? Have you got the right people looking at them? Are you solving the right problem or just pushing the problem into another channel? So I think you almost need to look holistically about how you're affecting the end-to-end experience, but also tie them to specific business goals to be effective. I mean, it should be 100% in agreement. I mean, there is a, another side debate in marketing generally about the effectiveness of uh, media and the effectiveness of marketing communications and how they should be linked to business outcomes and not just marketing or be measured by marketing metrics. But uh, Roy, if I can bring you in, because you touched upon some specific measures earlier on in response to Chris's three-point plan for implementing customer experience. I'm calling it that, Chris, now, by the way. So just returning to you on that subject of of measurement, obviously you mentioned NPS and that's one way, but in terms of linking it with business outcomes, what does that tangibly or what could that tangibly look like in terms of determining the success of a a considerable effort that everybody's going to put in in improving customer experience? What measures of success alongside NPS should there be? Now, I think it starts with a fundamental DNA change. And let me come back to the point on who owns the customer. I strongly believe there is a fundamental change of driving customer obsession in in a company to, to step away from the fact that sales owns a customer. Because in the end, R&D, uh, marketing, uh, customer service, uh, supply chain, own as much of the customer as sales does. Because all of their activity influence, in the end, customer experience. You can have a fantastic salesperson selling you the world. 
But if you then deliver like crap, if you know your return policies and the way that you follow up with that customer, you deliver late, experience is going to be crap. Uh, if uh, you introduce new products in a bad way, again, you know it, it influences that experience. So I think it's fundamentally requires a company to think differently about customer centricity and customer obsession and let people realize that everyone has a role to play in managing kind of the experience with that uh, customers. And that's why for me, kind of the customer experience journey, for example, is, is a good way to do that because you can visualize effectively, you know, what the role everyone has, let's say, in following through that entire journey. Now, then if you can also tie measures that can indicate how am I influencing with my activity in this relevant touch point, how a customer experiences working with us in, in, in a B2B company, I think then holistically people start better understanding what their role to play is, how they contribute in the end to true customer-related KPIs. So I think it's a fundamental mindset change. That's why I typically push back quite hard if a discussion goes into a direction where that yeah, but you know we need to go to commercial to talk to the customer. You might be the person who's closing a deal. Great, but that's one part, one step, but only one step of the whole journey. It's a critical step, it's an important step, but it's not a holistic ownership of that customer experience. So if I understand you correctly, you're talking before you even get to making a decision on what measure should be applied for good CX, companies need to rethink quite what CX means at various different points and how to improve a journey across all of the different touch points. I mean, just just keeping to that, you mentioned customer journeys, and I know you've done a lot of work in this area. Customer journeys are another big issue. Uh, Let's touch upon it now. I mean, in terms of what you do now and the work that you do, uh, Ms. Abissi, what does defining and drawing a customer journey and thinking about it look like at Ms. Abissi? Talk to me about how you do it there and what it means. Now, I think it's, and, and here we'll come back to a fundamental point that Chris made. This starts with actually going out to customers to talk to them and together with customers draw up what their actual process looks like from identifying their problem, their challenge, the steps they undergo to identify what might be a potential solution, how to solve it, what companies to work with, all the way to kind of converting into an order and the loyalty and the customer service afterwards. And then you see that if you ask internally anyone to draw that journey, it's by default different than if you go to a customer and and let them design what their journey is. Now, I think the, the big benefit is that if you have that from an outside in, from a customer perspective, and then you start filling in the different touch points, you can start having a professional conversation. What should the contribution of this touch point be to moving these customers through that journey in preference of in the end landing with us as a company. And I think that's typically, at least in the companies that I've seen, a very difficult discussion because you know a lot of companies, B2B companies, tend to be very inside out focused and then say, okay, we've got a great product. So go out and sell the product. Okay, but you know there's much more uh, to that. And I think related also to touch points, I think there is still a massive let's say misinterpretation even on on what the purpose of of an individual touch point is. If I see 
how much information which has nothing to do with, uh, for example, on our website, we're, we're, we're trying to push out. It, it's almost sometimes a blur of let's put on everything we know about us as a company, eh, which has no relevance to what is actually the purpose of that given touch point to move that customer from one step to another as part of that, uh, that journey. So again, visualizing that from a customer perspective and actually visualizing it and, and putting it up on the wall and taking people there to say, okay, do we understand what this touch point is then contributing in moving the customer along? That's already a massive discussion. That's already a massive benefit as well. It speaks again to this this notion, this acceptance that you need to give yourself over to the customer and not act uh, wholly in, in service of the company, which it sounds like many organizations have fallen foul of. And Tony, we're moving around a little bit, and that's fine. Um, I want to ask you about what good looks like and how you should measure success. But before I do that, your response to what Roy was saying and your experience at Viva and perhaps before about customer journeys and mapping them and also making sure that you were joining the dots between touch points. What's your experience and what are some of the things that you've had to overcome and in what way, either in your existing role or in previous roles? I think really good point around understanding what the journey looks like and how the customer sees it versus how we see it is never the same, is what I've experienced. Partly because there's different players involved in it, partly because every customer's organization they're not just set up in cookie cutter fashion. They have different structures, different expertise, different people who are part of the process. I did not at Aviva, but my role prior to Aviva, we did a deep journey mapping exercise where we did it internally first and brought together lots of people and really looked at how do customers in, in this sector of our, our business, how do they move from purchase to renewal, to usage, to becoming advocates and really trying to map out those different touch points. And then we tested it with customers. And I will say that it, it changed when we talked to customers from what we thought it was inside out, which was really enlightening. That alone was probably worth all of the time we put into it was to get that greater understanding. So I think it's important to understand how your customers see their motion. And it's also, it's never linear. That's the other thing. There's lots of twists and turns in that path, and it's hard to, to predict those. So I almost think you have to be ready to be relevant at the moment that you're intersecting with the customer to know as much as you can and to be open to asking them questions or giving them the opportunity to give you some inputs so that you can adjust the journey to be right for them in the moment that they're in. And, and that's hard. I think that's something we're all aspiring to do digitally, but it's a lot of effort, it's a lot of data, and it's a lot of planning. But that's, I think, the nirvana that we're all looking for is to be completely customized, but systematically customized and make sure that it's what the customer needs. I suppose which will be ultimately effective, but perhaps if you can do it in an efficient way. Uh, there is definitely a theme emerging, I'm hearing from everybody at all, uh, in answer to all questions, that uh, it's so important to be in service um, and serve needs. Um, and um, and not, as I say, come from a starting point of what's right for the company. So thank you for that, Antonia. If I can just stick with you and just ask you this question, because I'm, I'm personally very interested in how to measure success, because if you're going to whoever it is that you need to go to, to get sign off on 
investing in either infrastructure, technology, whatever it is to deliver better experience, then I'm guessing you're going to need to be able to demonstrate what the company is going to get from it, um, because that's when you do need to think about the company and and outcomes. So uh, again, what does good look like and how to measure it? Because it does require a lot of time, it does require a lot of effort, and it can, from a technology point of view and a trading point of view and a development point of view, cost quite a lot of money as well. So what should you be saying to your boss, your finance officer, whoever it is, that good looks like? Well, I will say simpler is better. That in marketing, you can get absolutely caught up in, in multitudes of metrics, and they and they're so many things are measurable and you can go crazy with metrics. But at the end of the day, it's how do the things that you are presenting, sharing, engaging with customers, how does that drive the core business metrics? I think Chris might've said that it really needs to align with what the business has to accomplish. And one of those is, is sales. You know, are, are we generating pipeline? Is our pipeline closing into business? Are there things that we're doing that are moving that pipeline faster? Or is there pipeline loss that we could have prevented with the right marketing? So that those are some of the things that we're measuring at Aviva. Some of the other things that I look at from an overall customer experience, and it depends on your role, is retention rates and renewal rates and usage rates. Are the things that you're selling being used and are they adding value? And those are business metrics that we try to really align our marketing metrics to show how we're supporting those business outcomes. Thank you for that. Chris, no conversation around customer experience is complete without touching upon personalization. It's a, it's a hot topic uh, in B2C, how to do it, what makes for good personalization, because we've obviously all seen some pretty sledgehammer, redundant examples of personalization in our personal engagement with brands. I mean, so what does it mean in B2B uh, personalization? Is there changes there? Is there a better way of doing it? I think personalization, just like in the B2C space, is, is one of those things that's been talked about for years and on, on the surface. It sounds like a, an easy no-brainer. You know, personalized experience is a better one. But working out what to personalize is probably the biggest challenge. And I think on some instances, it's got the potential to dramatically increase the amount of content that you've got to produce. And is your organization ready to do that? Or do you want to bring in technology to help you almost automate some of that content? So there's like, is your organization ready for it? But also what to personalize and what adds value is probably the harder question to answer. Like, I think personalizing an experience based on just the number of visits you've had may not offer you massive gains, in, especially in, in kind of that early stage acquisition. But we've had to get a little bit more specific in those areas and had great success where we connect the dots a little bit more. So we might use a personalized kind of pre-sales landing page and link that to a broader campaign. But we can use that personalized landing page to figure out from what company someone's coming from and in what position are they, and then engage them around questions around what pain points they're having. And those pain points uncovered in that personalized portal then get fed back into the customer service team or the sales team, which create a better personalized face-to-face experience. And so we're almost using the interactions online to drive a better face-to-face interaction as opposed to just 
in-the-moment personalization tactics online, which generally don't necessarily deliver that much advantage. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, again, people listening won't be able to see what I could see, Antonia and Roy Riley smiling in response to some of the pitfalls of personalization. Can I just get a quick thought from both of you on uh, some of the difficulties, but also perhaps what it's mean and, again, what success might actually look like in terms of personalization? Let me start with you, Antonia. So I think personalization is is really about relevance, almost more so than personalization. You need to be presenting information that really honors the journey of whoever you're you're personalizing for. Where are they and what do you know about them? And the nirvana for me is that you're connecting touch points. So they just had a call or a chat with a service rep. They had a conversation that was captured in Salesforce with their account manager, and now they're on their site looking for training. Can you be relevant to them with that connected information? I'll say in my current world, we're a long way from that. We're moving in that direction. It's a big investment in data and connected experiences, but that's the what we're all aspiring to do, I think. And it's less about being personalized and more about being relevant. Thank you very much. It's very clear. Roy, just a thought, uh, a quick thought, if I could ask on personalization. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Antonia is spot on there. And actually, it's quite interesting to see relevance is exactly the type of word that in some of our customer interviews uh, we also have seen. Let me generalize that a little bit maybe into B2B, but people are not so much interested in a personalized experience versus other customers. They're interested in make it relevant to me make the ease of doing business with your company better. So that's what personalized means for many customers, at least in our industry, make it relevant at the moment that it matters. Be consistent in the message. Don't have one person that you talk to give a complete different message. You know, don't mess up what you have on your website versus what you're stating somewhere else in a different touch point. Uh, be relevant and make it easy you know, for them to work with you even more over more information or you know better price or etc if so relevance and and removing friction by uh, the sounds of things again something that every brand should think about regardless of whether or not they're b2c or b2b chris uh, by way of rounding up i've just got one quick question for all of you let me begin with you thinking forward just to the near term uh, what's the big challenge or opportunity in cx that b2b brands should be either waking them up in the middle of the night or getting them springing out of bed in the morning. Uh, what's uh, what's the next frontier, would you say, from a CX perspective? And there's probably a, a couple of items, I think, especially as B2B's become a lot more personal recently, especially, I think, Antonio mentioned it at the beginning as we've all started working from home a lot more, we've kind of seen into people's lives, but with that, we've almost expecting more empathetic experiences and more individual experiences that tie to us. And I think that's going to be a big factor coming up. Along with kind of an extension of that, kind of making services accessible to everybody and how we make accessible services in the B2B space and make sure that what we're creating works for everyone who works for that company and not just a few. And probably the final one is that climate impact is, again, a big theme at the moment. And how do we kind of show what impact doing business with someone has on your overall carbon footprint and like the big themes of the world. How does how does that affect the experience that we give to someone and how does that change whether or not you work with a company or even 
are you going to choose to work with someone because they make your carbon footprint less, for instance? Thank you very much. Um, we are setting up, I think, perhaps future episodes of Inside B2B, but uh, certainly no no small to-do list for people there. So thank you, Chris. Roy, what's next? Yeah, I think, like we said at the beginning, there's an evolution. And I think, like Chris mentioned, there's evolving topics uh, that will influence um, how we need to act. I think one big step that I still see that we're starting to understand a little bit more is a very moving from a traditional approach of trying to attract audience to actually be relevant where the audience is active already. Uh, This is where you see very practically, I think, shifts happening where we start to understand as a B2B company that it's maybe not so much about how can we get more visitors to our website, but how can we bring relevant content actually to our customer premises? So syndication of content, bringing the right information at a moment where actually the customer requires it is again a a fundamental shift in thinking. And I think what I see is that that's probably a big game changer in maybe some of the more traditional B2B industries. Thank you, Roy. Antonia, the final word to you. I think two things that I want to talk about. One is just that proliferation of data and using it responsibly and intelligently with relevance. I think that's critical. I know there's a lot of excitement about AI-driven personalization, and it worries me. It worries me. I think it has to be really tested to ensure that it fits the moment. I think the other element, particularly in B2B, is that We have known customers, known visitors, known prospects more often than I think you do in the the consumer world. And it's really important to honor what you know about somebody and make sure that you are respecting their experience and giving them the the thing that they need. You're, You're listening to what they're telling you and however they're interacting with you and you're giving them the right info and not personalizing for the sake of personalizing, but you're serving up relevant content and ensuring again that you're meeting their needs. And that's the most important thing, more than clever personalization, is that you're making it easy to do business with you, making it easy for them to use what you have to solve their problems and ensuring it's it's relevant to them. Thank you very much. That word again, relevance, and I would add empathy and adds what you just said there, respecting people's experience and needs as key takeaways in delivering better experiences and ultimately better outcomes. I mean, I'm hearing anyway that it's about market orientation. It's about what we said and talked about at the beginning. It's about giving yourself over to the customer, realizing you're not them. So you need to find out what makes sense and how to improve their experience. Uh, So thank you very much for leading me to that conclusion and thank you very much for your insight and imparting your experiences. Chris, Antonia, Roy, appreciate it a lot. And I appreciate everybody that listened today. So thank you very much. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to Inside B2B in partnership with Omobono, with me, Russell Parsons. This podcast was produced by Tim O'Donoghue at Bauer London Creative. Look out for the next podcast in the series, where we will be again exploring excellence in B2B marketing. Until then, goodbye.